You're listening to Advancing Our Church. Relationship is a, an essential component to our, our contact with others and, and our partnership with them. I think for our men, we need to gear them much more toward a much more simple life. And I think as Pope Francis, one of the first things that he did was to live a more simple life. And my parents were just as supportive of my brothers and sisters getting married as they were for the two of us becoming priests. It was just something very normal. Hello and welcome everyone. I hope you had a terrific week. I'm Jim Friend and welcome to Advancing Our Church, Episode 4. It's been an exciting couple weeks watching the audience of our podcast grow and I just want to thank all of you for your prayers and support and a very special welcome to any of our new listeners. I received some great feedback on the St. James alumni interview last week and some nice shout outs from my friends in the Catholic education community. Retweeting and reposting us on social media is always a huge help and very much appreciated. So thank you for your support. Next week, we'll be returning to the topic of Catholic education when I interview my friends at Burke's Catholic High School in my home diocese of Allentown. It's a huge success story that was featured in Momentum magazine a couple of years ago on the merger of two Catholic high schools. Tune in to hear the story of how they merged and grew enrollment at the new high school, which is now larger than the two previous high schools combined. It's an inspiring story, and I hope you'll join us. Well, with all that housekeeping aside, now let's get to work. St. John Vianney said, The priest is not a priest for himself. He is a priest for you. He also said, The priesthood is the love of the heart of Jesus. When you see a priest, think of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our guest today exemplifies these words. Meet Monsignor Andrew Baker, the rector of the seminary and vice president of Mount St. Mary's University in Emmitsburg, Maryland. Monsignor Baker was ordained to the priesthood in the Diocese of Allentown in 1991. He has served in a variety of parishes, including pastor of the Cathedral of St. Catherine of Siena in the Diocese of Allentown. Monsignor Baker has taught on high school faculties and served as a Catholic University chaplain. Monsignor Baker has served on the faculty of St. Charles Seminary in Overbrook and on the Congregation for Bishops in Rome. He earned a license in sacred theology from the University of Navarre and a doctorate from the Pontifical University of the Holy Cross in Rome. I worked with Monsignor Baker just a few years ago when we both served in the Diocese of Allentown, and I was very pleased that he invited me to visit him at the Mount while I was in Maryland last month. My interview took place in Monsignor's office, and ironically, as I walked in, he pointed out that he was catching up on his home diocese by reading the latest copy of the 80 Times. Monsignor Baker is just an incredibly smart, dedicated, and holy man, and I think as you listen to our conversation about his role as rector of the seminary, You'll learn, as I did, about the complexities of running a national seminary and how important it is to build relationships. While I sat with him, I also asked him towards the end of my interview how he managed to run a successful debt reduction campaign while he was pastor of the cathedral in Allentown. Stick around for that part of the story because Monsignor offers some great thoughts on his role as pastor, which can be applied to any leader who is thinking about a fundraising campaign. Without further ado, here is my interview with Monsignor Baker. Maybe we could start with, um, you know, tell me a little bit about the history of the seminary here. It's got a long history, 1808. Okay. So it was the second uh, oldest seminary in the country. It was founded by Father John Dubois, who became the fourth bishop of New York. So it has it's steeped in history. And in 1808, Father Dubois, who was a French immigrant, 
um, saw the need to educate younger boys to prepare them for the major seminary, the theologate, if you will. And the only one in the country was at St. Mary's in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. So he devised uh, this seminary to be a feeder school, if you will, to prepare the younger boys with basic education so that they could go on and study theology. Uh, and from that grew um, a theologate, which is that last four years of theology before ordination, and a university that grew out of that as well. And it's a beautiful campus. It's really. incredible. He knew exactly what he was doing when he came here. And this mountain, as a matter of fact, was called, even before he arrived here, um, uh, St. Mary's Mount. So the seminary became known as Mount St. Mary's, and then right. the University of Mount St. Mary's University. But even the locals, the, the Catholics that were here, and there's been a long tradition of Catholics being in this area, uh, saw this as a very special place. So since that time, I mean, we've um, educated thousands and thousands of priests. Um, included among them are 51 bishops over our, our history. Oh, wonderful. Um, and that kind of makes sense because, in, you know, the beginning there were only two seminaries, so they had to come from somewhere. Um, but right now we are uh, serving 21 partner dioceses. Uh, we're also serving four congregations of religious life or consecrated life. Um, and we have 117 seminarians. So that would include two years of pre-theology, and they're basically studying their philosophy, and then four years of theology after that up until they're both diaconate and then finally priesthood ordination at the end. Um, so it's, it's, it's a great, both historic place. We're one of the largest seminaries in the, in the country. And um, we're not just a regional seminary. We're, we're really national in scope. So we have men from Colorado. Mm-hmm. We have men from uh, Georgia. We have men from Kansas, uh, from Nebraska, from Wisconsin, and then all the locals here, Washington, D.C., Arlington, Virginia, Harrisburg, just north of here. Um, so we get them from all over, and it's a wonderful mixture of, of really good men, and they're going to make great priests. That's wonderful. And and um, and why would... So if you have... How many partner dioceses did you say? 21 partner dioceses. Part. So right. if a young man was interested at, from that particular diocese, he would naturally come here, right? Or, or would he? Well, if he's in that diocese, most of our dioceses also send uh, or partner with one other, if not more, seminaries. Gotcha. So normally the decision to go to this seminary, to the Mount, is up to the bishop or vocation director. Some dioceses ask for an input from the seminarian but normally it's not the seminarian himself who decides. So what makes it kind of unusual, uh, for instance, in a, in a school setting, you're really trying to attract, um, to one degree, parents, um, but later on, uh, high school, and then also certainly at university level, you're trying to attract the student, him or herself, right? Mm-hmm. Well, we're all about attracting vocation directors and, bi- and bishops because the seminarians, um, while they sometimes come and visit, it's ultimately the decision of the bishop or, or vocation director. So that makes our approach a little bit different. Um, if you can put it that way, our marketing is targeted uh, not so much at the seminary himself, although it's all about him. Sure. And our mission here is seminarian-centered, mm-hmm. and the seminarian is really our best promoter. Um, by how well that we help serve, we serve him, that gets the word out. But um, so that's one way. That's kind of um, you know our, our best billboard, I say, is, is our seminary himself. But when we're trying to kind of get other seminarians, if I go to a bishop and he's convinced that, oh, the Mount would be a great place to send, he's not just sending usually one, he'll send a couple. And then over the years, he'll continue to try to, you know, send and, uh, seminarians and partner with us continually. 
Um, so our target is sometimes more toward bishop and vocation director than the seminary himself. Mm -hmm. So consequently, do you go out and, and see those bishops and seminary directors, or do they come here to the mount? A mixture, mixture of both. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I go out and I have visited uh, some dioceses in the Midwest where we partner with them, and also a, a bishop that we don't. Um, this coming week, I'm going out to a, a diocese to meet with a bishop who hasn't sent. Uh, he's a relatively new bishop, and um, it's been a long time since they have sent here. Um, then also we have those that we do partner with, they come in and visit. So the vocation director at least visits once if not twice a year. Um, and they'll come and stay a day or two or sometimes three. Um, we'll meet with the vocation director. We have sometimes rather long meetings depending on how many seminarians they have here. And we go through the whole process of um, the, how well his seminarian is doing. And we go through each one individually. And then he also has an opportunity to meet us, meet the faculty, meet the other seminarians. Uh, we had a bishop here a couple of weeks ago with whom we met. And um, as you might remember, the Mount basketball team was very successful this year mm -hmm. and actually played Villanova. <coughs> Excuse me. So he went down and watched the basketball game with the guys uh, down in our rec room. So he, they get an opportunity to kind of visit, and we have that kind of personal contact because that makes all the difference in the world. Yeah. Um, I remember Bishop Cullen once telling me, he said, it's all about relationships. Yeah. And when it, you know, push comes to shove, um, it's more than just about numbers and structures and programs. Uh, fundamentally, it's a relationship because that is that is our faith too. God Himself is a relationship, mm -hmm. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Our lives were meant to be relational, and so um, for the seminary in a particular way, relationship is a an essential component to our our contact with others and and our partnership with them. It's wonderful. So you mentioned you had uh, some young men preparing for a religious life as well as uh, diocesan life. Right. How is their formation differentiated here at the seminary? Yeah. Well, they um, three of the four um, congregations for consecrated life have their own kind of house, if you will. They're living in somewhat of a community. Mm -hmm. um, so they come here for much of the day, but they also have contact with uh, and, and live with their formators too, so that they can grow in their own spirit, uh, their own charism, uh, and get a chance to live in, in community. Um, we also have some oratorians, which is a kind of a hybrid, if you will. They are um, Eventually they will become priests for a particular diocese, but they follow uh, a particular rule of life, that of St. Philip Neri. So they too will have contact with their communities, um, whether it's a visit here or uh, one of them actually, or both of them return to their houses in their diocese for their pastoral field education. It's a little bit long way for both of them, and sometimes they only go every other week, but they sometimes spend the entire weekend with their communities uh, and then come back uh, for the week. So we, we still have that ability for religious congregations um, to have a, a way in which their formation continues as a religious, but at the same time, we, um, we also help them with their education, with their living of their spiritual life and their uh, liturgical life uh, and our formation advising uh, is all here localized at the, at the seminary. Mm -hmm. Do you, uh, being the rector, I imagine you do a, uh, you work with a lot of different folks. Do you get to individually spend a lot of time with the men here at the seminary? I do, and I wish it was more. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's always the challenge. Yeah, um, because it is also an administrative position, both at the university level. I'm a vice president of the university, and certainly here at the seminary, there's a lot of if you'll administrative work that needs to be done, a lot of meetings. and um, But since I live here, um, I eat here, I pray here, uh, I'm 
uh, thankfully embedded in the in the, the life of the seminary. Uh, it is somewhat of a family. So I wish I could spend even more time with, with the guys. Sure. Um, but the opportunity is always here. This is our it's our home. Whenever I talk to the university, they they note that you know the the students that come, it's homely, um, but they've got a home to go to. But here at the seminary, it's much more of a home for us, mm-hmm. especially the priests, uh, because we live here all the time. Yeah. We have no other place to go to. This is our home. So what would you say to a young man who is thinking about uh, a life of a priest? Um, What kind of of an interview process do you have? Well, primarily if they're thinking of it, their first kind of interview and and contact is with their own home diocese. Um, So if they've come to the point where, especially through help of a their priest or even their family members or teachers and they, they're kind of discerning a vocation, their first step is with kind of the local church. Uh, often it's the pastor or the vocation director, but eventually it would have to be the vocation director of that diocese and then the bishop. Um, so uh, there's usually a process by which they go through an interview process and um, the vocation director principally gets to know the young man over some a period of time and activities and um, interviews as well and then the bishop to some extent um, and then they decide if they're going to send them here um, then sometimes they'll come and visit here if the bishop says I, I'm thinking of sending you there go and check it out um, so I will I will meet with them uh, just in a very informal way they'll have an opportunity to uh, participate in the life of the seminary um, some of them will attend classes with uh, seminarians from that diocese from which they come uh, they'll be here and participating in Mass. Some of the fun things that the guys do, they'll be a part of that. Um, just to help them see a little bit more about seminary life, and particularly how that is here at Mount St. Mary's. Um, uh, some I don't see, or we, we don't interview. Sometimes the diocese um, basically goes through the whole process and, and sends the paperwork, and then we say, from what we see, we, we'd love to have him, uh, and then we meet him on the first day. Uh, so it's, it's really kind of mixed. Uh, how we how we do it? That's great. From your from your vantage point, having all these contacts with different dioceses, you must see a lot of different kinds of marketing programs for seminarians. What yeah. what are some of the ones, some of the better ones that you've seen, or more effective ones? Yeah, um, you know, short brief videos. Okay, that seems to be extremely effective today's in today's world. I think something really um, eye catching um, that's inspiring. Uh, and that's not too long. Um, and the same I would say about materials too. Um, something that's very clear, eye-catching, not too long. Um, for young people and even for very busy vocation directors and bishops, um, that's, uh, you know, they just don't have the, t- they don't think they have the time. Um, and they want to kind of get what they can almost immediately. We're living in that world uh, for good or for evil, um, of immediate eye-catching, information-flowing sure. uh, kind of world. So, um, But then secondly, I would say not to fall into the trap of relying on print or video on media. Because I really think in this kind of world, if you will, the world of seminaries, that personal approach is becoming more important and more noticeable. Um, you stand out if you pick up the phone and call a vocation director, for instance. And they've said that to me. Mm-hmm. I really appreciate the fact that you took the time to call me. Um, when I visited some of the bishops, they were very grateful. Well, it 
it's nice that you came here. You know, um, that kind of personal contact uh, can go a long way, and um, it's it, it's more noticeable, I think, now in our in today's world than ever before. That real personal contact, uh, because it's just not as done in in a lot of other you know areas of, of their lives. Um, that's great. Yeah, that's good. I, I've certainly seen too. We we host here at the seminary during the uh, summer months what we call the Kovadis um, camps, the vocational camps. Um, and that helps two, I think, areas of our, of our life here. One is it helps the diocese that's coming. So if we have a partner diocese that says, we'd like to come during the summer and have our vocation camp at your seminary, well, that's helping them. That's a good thing. Um, but it also promotes the seminary. Sure. Uh, because those young men are thinking, I could come here. Uh, and uh, I think that's a great promotion as well, just to show the place and to make it available to young men that are thinking about it. They also have, some of these dioceses also bring what they call their fiat camps, where they're girls, young girls that are thinking of religious life. Mm-hmm. Uh, once again, it helps with our partner dioceses. You know, we're helping them out in their own vocations, the numbers, um, but also it helps promote this particular institution because uh, people see the beauty of it. Um, they begin to think, oh, I could, I could be here. I could see myself here uh, at Mount St. Mary's uh, Seminary. Tell me a little bit about, you know, kind of your vision for the seminary. You've been here two years now? Almost two. Almost two years. Um, I imagine there was a little bit of a honeymoon factor where you had to get, you know, understand the history and kind of what you wanted to, to bring to the table. But now you're, you're finishing up your second year. What kind of uh, focus do you have and, and, uh, and, and what kind of... Um, what kind of culture do you promote here at the seminary? Yeah. Well, um, one of the first rector's conference that I gave, I, I called it being Francis-esque. Um, to try to bring, I think, the great qualities that we see in Pope Francis and also the things that he's beginning to say about formation of priests to the forefront uh, in our formation program here. Um, for instance... Um, simplicity of life. Uh, I'd really like to... We live in such a materialistic age, and young people today have got sometimes more than enough, if you will, uh, maybe too much in things, in choices, in even just material uh, wealth. Um, I think for our men, we need to gear them much more toward a much more simple life. And I think as Pope Francis, one of the first things that he did was to live a more simple life in that uh, residence, the Santa Marta, rather than the Papal Palace. That was just a clear sign to me that that needs to. Be, that's great for our age, and it's something that's very important uh, in our society. Um, also, he has spoken a lot about the church. Uh, I should say he hasn't used. He's used this phrase several times, but I think in many ways he's spoken about the church being that field hospital. So part of our, our job as formators is uh, to help our men understand that um, the world in which we live um, isn't perfect. You know, it is a battlefield. Um, but that doesn't mean we should avoid the, the battle uh, or avoid people that are beaten up and battled and having difficulties. And No, you, as individuals, as priests, and therefore we bring the church to the battlefield um, to be uh, a place of mercy, to be a place of kindness to be a place of healing. And we can't do that by sitting back and waiting. Um, we have to be that field hospital, you know, advance. Um, also, one program that was here at the seminary that I've been promoting a little bit more and want to see more of 
is um, what we call the evangelization mission trip. Um, <clears throat> it was started by a group of seminarians a number of years ago, and I've asked that our men um, participate in it at least once while they're here in formation, so it's become a requirement of, of formation. Uh, every fall and spring break, a group of our seminarians, 20 to 30 or so, partner with uh, a campus, college campus. Could be Catholic, maybe not. The last one they went to was Towson University, close to here, and it's not a Catholic university. George Mason, we went in the fall, not, not Catholic. Be Catholic or not. Um, and they work with the chaplain there, as well as if there are focused missionaries, the Fellowship of Catholic University students. If there are you know, those Catholic missionaries on campus, they also work with them. And they do basically street evangelization. Uh, once again, um, we have to be willing to engage people, engage culture, uh, engage um, the questions that arise uh, in people's lives. And the men come back thinking, you know, I need to study more philosophy hmm. before theology because people's questions are very basic. Is there is there even good in this world? What's the meaning of suffering? Does God exist? And those are real kind of real basic questions that they get into conversations with, with college students and some even faculty and staff. And they're on the actually on the sidewalk, two by two, meeting people, saying, you know, how are you? My name is... Um, you know, what's your life like? What's your major? And with that, a whole conversation starts. Um, so those are the kinds of things that I think formation needs to be doing a, a bit more of and is part of that Francis-esque um, culture, if you will, within the, within the seminary. Uh, and then finally, I would say that this whole, what I would call theology of accompaniment, I think is very important. Uh, Pope Francis has certainly used that word and it's a word that's recurring over and over again in the new guidelines that just came out in the fall for seminary formation. Uh, these guidelines right now are at the universal level of the church, and then the uh, bishops here in the United States are going to take those guidelines and make more specific ones for the United States. But this document that came out uses that word accompaniment many, many times. Um, and I think it, it's going to help, it really has to help change us as formators to realize that we're not to simply be teachers um, bestowing some sort of information to them. Um, we have to, along with the seminarians, accompany them in their discernment of the vocations and help them make a decision. And a, a decision that they are very clear about, they know what they're doing, and they make it in a permanent way. Because after ordination, as it is with marriage, you've got to be ready to make that decision and then be willing to follow through with it. But that takes an accompaniment um, with and getting to know the seminarian well uh, in order to make that happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Wow. You, um, you've mentioned Pope Francis quite a bit. and do you, uh, He's such an inspiring figure in our church. Are you finding that, um, that these men, are, many of them must be inspired by his life and, and his example? Uh, are, are you finding that bringing more men to the priesthood today? Um, I think probably not as much. There'd be certainly some qualities that they, they do admire and, and want to, to follow. Um, so I think to that degree, to the degree that it really helps them in their kind of character building, I think that's that's probably the case. Um, but their reasons for coming to the priesthood and discerning their vocation um, usually has something to do with a local person in question. You know, it's kind of interesting. Even though the Pope certainly is inspiring, and all the Popes have been in their own way, um, and sometimes they can cause a young man, and they do, to think a little bit more deeply. But when you start talking to them about their vocation, they start talking about the events in their lives, or the priests that they met, or 
the college where they were and how they received kind of a reversion in their faith. And it's more of a, if you will, local reasons uh, for coming forward and recognizing that maybe God's calling me to be a priest. Personal reasons, yeah, you're saying. Yeah, personal and personal story. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, just last night we had a, um, a dinner for our benefactors. Very successful dinner for our benefactors, and what do they love the most? We did several things uh, leading up to the dinner and at the dinner itself. But we had two of our seminarians give their vocation story, and I said, I said this publicly: it's very easy to promote the seminary. As rector, all I have to do is get out of the way <laughs> and get these seminarians up here and just tell their story. This is who you're supporting. This is why you're supporting it. This is how they got here, and they are going to be priests. For God's people, but they're going to be priests also because of God's people, because of their support, prayerfully and financially. Um, and so again, I don't have to. I really got to. I just have to get out of the way and let the seminarian speak, because again, their vocation story is very, you know, it's their personal history, uh, and God has spoken to them in that personal history. Mm-hmm. You mentioned uh, your, your benefactors. Uh, uh, that's probably a, a big part of your job, or, or is it uh, fundraising for for the seminary? Yes, to some degree. We have a director of seminary development uh, that works with the university advancement team, mm-hmm. um, and plus an administrative assistant. So um, those two ladies are just wonderful. They work great as a team. Um, so they're doing a little bit of that fundraising, but as rector, um, I'm also part of that uh, kind of team, uh, and. Uh, so yeah, it's actually a little more than I would have thought. Um, I'm doing more of that kind of fundraising um, than I originally would have thought, but it's fine. I, uh, and is your donor base kind of a national base, or is, are they a lot of them localized here? Well, the majority would be here. Certainly, our alumni is national, so we have those. Some of our bigger um, lay donors would be more local here. Some of them had been involved with the university or seminary. Um, but we do have some very generous parents of both seminarians and priests that are found uh, around the world. But probably, you know, our, our, our biggest ones, and if we really put them all together, they'd be within that kind of tri-state, Maryland, Pennsylvania, Virginia, mm-hmm. uh, Washington, D.C. area. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. What, um, what can we do as lady, as parents, to encourage vocations? Yeah. I can only, I speak about personal story. Yeah. I can go back to my own personal story. Yeah. Um, and I'd have to say that what can people do? If you are living your faith to its fullest degree and uh, through thick and thin um, that are helping your children to both know the faith, to know Jesus Christ, to help them to develop a real prayer life, to give them a good education. I would recommend Catholic education, absolutely. Um, and uh, just giving them that will be an incredible encouragement um, because then they'll have the tools, if you will, to discern. And that's when God will speak and they'll recognize his voice. So that's that's the first thing. Um, secondly, um, in my experience with the seminarians, for the most part, parents are, are supportive, but not always. And that makes a big difference. So if you notice something within a child, um, you know, your young son or daughter, and you think it might be a vocation, Encouraging that explicitly, without being you know, in any way oppressive, but just giving them an opportunity to voice it and to encourage it, and maybe go to a Kobadis or Fiat or um, make it normal. If that if that was their choice, 
as any other choice would be, it'd be just as normal and, and, you, and you would be just as supportive. Because I know coming from a large family, I have a, you know 11 brothers and sisters, there's two of us that are priests and many that are married. And my parents were just as supportive of my brothers and sisters getting married as they were for the two of us becoming priests. It was just something very normal. Um, and I, I, that's certainly would be a little bit of advice. And then pray. Pray, um, prayer, especially the rosary, uh, four vocations and in front of the Blessed Sacrament. It sounds just very basic, but it's, it's true. Um, in my one of my previous uh, assignments, I had the opportunity to look over um, what they call conquenial reports from dioceses. So every five years or so, a bishop has to put a report together and report to Rome, to the Holy Father, about what's going on in the diocese. And almost with, you know, just in almost in every case that I saw a, a, an increase of vocations, a noticeable increase of vocations, there was also at the same time an increase in Eucharistic adoration in that diocese. Whether it was more parishes doing 24 hours or just a little bit more Eucharistic adoration for some hours, it, it was it was almost eerie the way those two things happened at almost the same time. Um, so, and everybody can do that. That's something that's at the heart of what it means to be a, a saint, uh, mm-hmm. laity and clergy alike. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about the team here at the seminary, the folks that you work with. Yeah. Well, they're very experienced. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're all centered on formation. They want to be here because they want to serve the church. And they believe in the mission uh, of the seminary. One good thing about the seminary is that our, our, our mission is very focused. Um, we are about priestly formation. It's almost, you, you can't help but know that. You know, you go to another university or another business, and uh, um, there can actually be competing, if you will, missions. But here it's pretty focused and clear. Um, and that helps because we've got committed people to say, I'm here because of that, that mission. It's not just simply a job, it's a love for them. Um, and when I came on board, there were a lot of very experienced, both formators and administrators and, and staff. Um, but I must say that, uh, but as a, as a team, it's clearly focused. It's also family oriented, which I didn't expect, particularly among the faculty, <coughs> faculty and staff. <coughs> so that we'll have events here at the seminary and the families will participate. Um, professor and spouse and children. So down in our rec room, you know, for a Christmas party or whatever, uh, there they get the kids are also kind of a part of our, our life and the life of the seminarians. Um, it's going to be very interesting, as one professor said to me, when his daughter grows up, you know, she's only six or so, um, but what she's going to say about the seminary, because she knew these guys and she's going to know them all growing up, and she had been here. This is like a somewhat of a second home for her you know daddy works for the seminary and, and uh, you know she she's here so there's a there's a real family orientation um, to, to this place which is good because I, I think it's good for the men in their formation mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely one of the things I wanted to ask you uh, about was your work in Allentown when you were the pastor of the cathedral there you ran um, a debt reduction campaign, which mm. was very, very successful. Yeah. And I, I think um, for a lot of pastors who may face the same kind of challenges in their own parish, it, it's certainly a, an inspirational story, at least it is to me. Can you tell me a little bit about that whole process that led you to decide to do that campaign and maybe just a little bit about the project itself? Yeah. Yeah, I think I was warned ahead of time that this is the worst kind of campaign that anybody can do, debt reduction. Absolutely, you know? so yes. Why, <laughs> why are you doing that? That's why I was so um, inspired. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
So it's a bit of a, a risk. Um, I, you can't be afraid to take risks because um, for a parish uh, that was kind of changing a bit demographically, um, when I first became pastor, I clearly saw that we needed to plan for the future. And part of that future was we could could no longer be weighed down by this debt. Um, we were... It was taking away from the essential mission of the, of the church. We didn't have dollars to do things that we needed to do. And it was about a million dollars, as I It was a million seven when million I first seven. arrived. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So and just in debt. So we weren't even paying, you know, the interest on the, on that and getting worse. And so, um, you know, the first thing that I needed to do was to think and pray about it, um, and then talk to people about it. Uh, talk to the parish. Talk to the parish council, the finance council, um, and at first. You know, the, the advice came back. You can't just do debt reduction because that's no one's going to like that. I mean, people aren't going to contribute to that. It's the worst thing you could do. Who's going to, you know? Um, so we thought, well, maybe we'll kind of spice it up a little bit and maybe do a little project and and also reduce the debt. And um, at, at a certain point, in one of the meetings that I had, uh, one of the prisoners just said, "You know what, Monsignor? Just do it. We all know how bad this is." Um, it's, it's weighing us down. We, we can't get through this. Let's just be honest with our, the rest of the prisoners and say, we've got to get rid of this debt. And they'll respond if you're just honest with them. So I thought, all right, let's do it. Um, and it made people, I think, that I had to communicate that, communicate the clarity of why this was important to get rid of. I said, it's like, well, we're not building bricks, but every money, every bit of money that comes you're not only giving a dollar to it, but because it's reducing also the, uh, you know, reducing the principal, we're also reducing our, our, our interest payments. So every dollar was, I don't know, dollar six or something, you know. Mm-hmm. So you're actually giving more than you actually give. And that those bricks, while are not physical, they're um, bricks that we'll be able to, or things that we're able to do once we're relieved of this weight. So um, while it doesn't, we're not building anything and you can't see anything, it's really building for the future. It's building for you and your children and your grandchildren. Taking this away will make us much more stable and able to do what we need to do for our mission. Um, so it was just, I think, just constantly letting people know of the situation that we're in, um, that we needed to plan for the future and give people that hope. Uh, and once you, you do that, you're clear in your communication and you provide some hope for people, they'll come on board. They will. Um, but you got to give them the hope and you got to give them the clarity that they need. And then finally, I would say this, and I, I learned this in the process. Um, it was the first time I had become a pastor. I had been in a parish before, but only as the assistant. And there's a difference. Um, <laughs> you suddenly are, you know, the bug stops there and you're the, you're the, you're the father of the family. <clears throat> so um, I learned that um, with campaigns, with raising money, first thing a priest needs to do is to serve his people well. If you're serving them well and you come back to them and say, we need this, say, all right, I trust you. I see that you're serving us well um, and the parish will be the same, serving us well. Um, But you've got to serve the people well no matter what situation you're in Uh, because that just builds then some confidence and gives them hope too. Uh, that they are being served well by their priests. So I, I, I tried to also do that at the, at the, as, as soon as I could uh, to build up a good, strong relationship, to build up the trust, and to help them to realize that, you know, why are we doing all this is so that the parish can serve you. 
uh, and that you'll have priests in the future to serve you as well. It's wonderful. It's a great story. And and how much did you raise in the end? It was one two, I think, in the end. One point two. <clears throat> one point two out of the one. We had gotten it down to one six, I think, before the campaign even started. Mm-hmm. And then it was at least one two, mm-hmm. um, lowering our interest and then making it possible that for them to not only to pay the interest but also pay into the principal slowly. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not quite sure where it is now, but mm-hmm. uh, uh, it certainly is. It was a, a great relief. Absolutely, absolutely. And while you were there, um, a couple of other development type things you did was implement stewardship as, as a way of life at your parish, and, yes, yeah. and began a legacy society as well, right? right? Exactly. The Siena Society. The Siena Society, precisely. Yeah. 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 And did you find that um, people embraced stewardship right away, or did it take time to help them understand that it was not just about the treasure, but mm-hmm. that it was time and time talent? And talent. Well? Yeah. yeah, it takes time. I yeah. think that's the biggest challenge: uh, that stewardship to be promoted as time, treasure, and talent. Uh, and for people to see that, you know, stewardship is is not just simply uh, coming out of one's wallet. It's got to come out of one's heart, and it has to be a commitment, a commitment to their faith, to their church, to their local community, and a personal commitment. Um, it involves sacrifice, yes, um, but it's that personal commitment, and that takes time. I think, unfortunately, too many Catholics um, giving to the parish, if you will, is just money. And it's usually the extra change in their back pocket, uh, and it's been the same amount for you know 20 years. Um, but rather to see stewardship uh, from a biblical perspective, you know, um, it is a way of life, if you will, a way of of truly participating, giving, and it's giving back ultimately to God Himself, who we owe everything to. Um, so. Yeah, absolutely. And then lastly, tell me a little bit about the Siena Society, how you got it started and yeah, a little bit of that. Well, I saw that there were a lot of really good people. Um, and at an age in which they thought they really wanted to support the parish in an ongoing way. Uh, so in, in part it was a response to, to those people, but also thinking of the future too, um, which brings hope once again. Uh, so the Siena Society was a way in which um, people could leave a, a, a legacy, something behind, um, an act of love for the future. Uh, so we organized it in such a way that people could give to it and be a part of it at whatever level and in many different ways. It was integrated, as you know, with the Diocesan Legacy Society too. Um, and then we gave back too with, with, with prayers, um, uh, continual prayer and then events. We had a couple of events for Santa Society, both members and, and other people that might be interested in it. Um, it's kind of an ongoing formation and activity, um, and uh, well, it, it's an investment in the in the future. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, well, wonderful. Um, anything else you want to add? Here at the Mount, I guess the the stewardship is uh, a bit unique mm-hmm. in the sense that we have priests. I'm not usually dealing with priests as far as stewardship is concerned. Um, but there are priests, too, who want to see formation continuing. They also want to be invested in their, their parishes, maybe not at the same level. Um, but I've been really, I've really admired a number of the priest alumni that have kind of come forward and either left things for the seminary um, and uh, are interested in keeping this place going. There's a great pride, a good pride. Um, so uh, whether it's a school or a seminary like ours, that relationship with alumni is really critical. It's not something that I fully realized as a pastor so much. 
I mean, we did have a school, but um, that that alumni connection to where they had gone, where they had been formed, where they received an education, um, a moment in their life that was so critical. Um, uh, reconnecting with them and showing that, that what they had can continue um, is uh, just an important part of, I think, stewardship uh, in an institution like an institution like this, or especially a school or university. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What kind of um, a lot of these young men will go on one day and be a pastor at a mm-hmm. parish? Is that a part of their priestly formation to be a shepherd for a community and understand all the different dynamics? Yes, yeah. yes, yeah. it is. Mm-hmm. It certainly is. And we have uh, we know that some of these men will go back to diocese, and within two or three years, sometimes they'll be a pastor. Wow, and sometimes so. <laughs> it's very quick, yeah. extremely quick. Um, and we've had some of the alumni come back and say that. Yeah, they're now pastors in just a couple of years, depending on the diocese and the situation. And some of them will be pastors of several parishes. They might be smaller at first, um, but it'll happen sooner rather than later. So we're getting them, we have to get them ready right away um, to be a pastor. One of the things that we do beyond the academic is that we have something called Pastors and Stewards. <clears throat> We've developed a program with the help of Lily, uh, a Lily uh, grant um, of computer modules that the seminarians can do while they're here. Um, modules such as personal finances, two modules on parish finances, uh, on uh, human resources, um, there's one on leadership. So these are things that they can we, we help them with when they're here. Right, they go through it, and then when they become pastors, they can just log back in and see you now. What, 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 what did a budget look like again? What was the parish budget? What are these things in the parish budget again? Uh, and just review that. Um, because some of those more practical things uh, is, uh, I mean, those are things that they have to know right away. Right. Um, no matter how small the parish is, uh, a couple of years out, they're going to be the pastor and they have to have some knowledge uh, of what's necessary. So our aim here is, all right, guys, you're going to be pastors uh, for the most part. You're parish priests for the most part. You're going to be pastors, and for a long part uh, of your priestly life. Uh, so we want to get you ready now. Yeah. How is um, formation? Oh, when were you ordained? Ninety one. Ninety one. So how has it? Um, how has it evolved since you were ordained in ninety one? Yeah, I'm constantly asking myself that question because I see it all the time. Yeah. Like, how in the world? <laughs> um, I think first of all, just going back to that point about being named pastor. When I was ordained in 1991. I thought I'd be a pastor when I was 20, 25 years ordained. Um, that would not have been, in Allentown even at that time, would not have been that unusual. I mean, that, that probably was about right. Um, uh, now quickly, within my time, even though because of various assignments, um, I was probably ordained 16 years or so, 16, no, maybe 17 years uh, when I was became a pastor. Although pre- priests of my time were, were named pastors much younger than that, so that changed very quickly. The the, the amount of years uh, for priests being you know appointed pastors dropped dramatically right after I was ordained. Um, so that's one of the things that we've got to make sure that we we do well here. The second thing that's very different uh, than it was even when I was ordained was that priests aren't living together with other priests anymore. Um, when I was ordained, it was not unusual to have two or three in a parish, and maybe one or two had four. Um, that's not the case. And you know, I became an assistant pastor. There was another assistant pastor and the pastor. There was three of us. Um, it wasn't an unusual set of circumstances. Now, uh, we have to prepare our men to be ready to be living on their own very quickly. 
They might have a couple of years with a pastor, uh, but soon they're going to have to live live on their own. That's why their 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 spiritual lives uh, and their prayer life has got to be real solid and strong, solid and strong, um, so they can deal with all these kinds of dif- changing uh, pressures and, and a changing world. Um, and they need to develop a stronger, even more so, a stronger fraternity among them, so that they can have the strength of their brothers when they get in these kinds of isolated uh, positions and, and places. Um, also, the human formation of seminarians is, uh, it wasn't even talked about when I was a seminarian. We talked about human formation. Um, but since Pope John Paul II's uh, apostolic exhortation called, um, I will give them shepherds pastor del Bobobis, there, since that time, which would have been 94 or so, um, there's been a greater emphasis on helping men in the seminary develop in character uh, and, and in their humanity and virtue. Um, as uh, the church says in her documents, our humanity as priests should not be an obstacle but a bridge for others to encounter Christ. So that's changed since I was, you know, in the seminary. It was almost assumed that you had fairly decent character and you come from a good family, and um, you know, but that's not always the case. Uh, and so we need to emphasize more and more that character development, that human formation, uh, than ever before. Um, and then finally, I think the issues have changed. Some particular issues have changed too. Um, when I was ordained, there were those hot button issues that were there. Primarily was abortion, but now we're talking about gender. We're talking about all these other things, and then they also have to deal with things that I, we never even thought of—the sexual abuse crisis, for instance, that uh, really rubber hit the road there around 2002. Um, that's something that we have to deal with as well in their own kind of integration of sexuality, uh, being aware of, of how they need to care for young adult children and young adults, and all those things that have to be in place mm-hmm. um, for them to to continue to care, and then also victims too. Um, that's very important. There is, they're going to have victims of, of, of abuse that they have to pastor uh, and, 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 and assist with, which would not have been a, even thought of when I was uh, ordained. Uh, it just wasn't a reality. As right. much. It was there. I shouldn't say that. It was a reality, but yeah. it just wasn't in any any area of life or culture. Yeah. It's not 2002 tough. changed a lot. It yeah. certainly did, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. So these men have to be prepared for, for that. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. Well, you're welcome. This has been fantastic. Yeah, thank you very much. I want to thank Monsignor Baker for being on our show today. Monsignor, you are such an inspiring priest for all of us, and I'm sure especially the seminarians under your care. On behalf of all of us, thank you for working so hard to ensure the future of our church. And remember what Monsignor said, everyone. Pray the rosary for vocations. What better month to start than in May, the month of Mary? For more information about Monsignor Baker and the seminary at Mount St. Mary's University, you can visit their website at msmary.edu forward slash seminary. Well, that's our show this week. I want to thank you all for joining us for the fourth episode of Advancing Our Church. If you'd like more information about our show, please visit our website at advancingourchurch.com. Follow us on Twitter at Advance Podcast or join our Facebook group. If you'd like to support our show, give us a rating on iTunes or keep retweeting and reposting our show on social media. We sure appreciate it. I'm Jim Friend. I hope you all have a fantastic week. Take care, everybody. God bless.